Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. I'm really excited today. We are beginning a brand new series called Intention. Uh, For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at God's intent and design behind how we live our lives, how we use our time, how we conduct our relationships, how we steward what God has given us, um, and really just asking ourselves the question, how God created and made each and every one of us to live in such a way that brings glory to Him and human flourishing all around us. And before we dive into the the topics and the themes of how the Bible speaks to these different areas of our life, I think we have to begin with the concept that God is Himself an artist, as a maker, as a creative. He designed and fashioned you Uh, the world around us, the community that we're a part of, with this specific design. And I love artists. I'm married to one. I'm friends with tons of them. I love the creative community. And one of the things that I love about creatives and what I love about artists is the intention they put behind their art. Uh, If you think about the Mona Lisa, most uh, art historians believe that it took, um, it took Leonardo da Vinci 14 years to create that one painting, which is not that big. And it took him about three years to complete, but he just kept working on it. Um, and then it never was even completed because of something that went wrong um, in da Vinci's hand. And 2004, what they discovered through light reflective technology is that even behind the painting that has become the most famous painting in the world, there's another sketching, uh, like a drawing behind it of another woman looking a different way without the columns. Then all that to say is there is an artist, um, arguably one of the greatest of, of human history, And this one painting, this thing, took up all of his intention. Think about architecture. There's a beautiful cathedral in Barcelona called Sagrada Familia. And Sagrada Familia, I encourage you, there should be an image or you can Google it. And Tony Gardi was the architect that was hired to create this beautiful cathedral. And what's amazing is that by the time he died, only 25% of the cathedral was finished. And to this day, again, this is back in the early 1900s, to this day, the architecture in the building is still being built according to that architect's design. I think about songwriters. Oh, one of my, my favorite songwriters, Ryan O'Neill, under the artist name Sleeping at Last, uh, recently did a whole series of songs based on the Enneagram and the different types and personalities that people have. And behind each t- uh, song, he created a podcast where he spends an hour talking about how he created this three-minute song and the intention behind each single instrument, how it's chosen, the time signature, the arrangement, 
Um, even what he had built-in fingerprints where his friends who identify with those certain types would send in an, a, a clip of, of something that they felt identified with their number and he'd weave it into this song. And as I'm just listening to this podcast, I'm just thinking, man, what incredible intention. And whether you're looking at painters or architects, songwriters, whether you're looking at poets or dancers, that creatives don't just make, they make with intention. And before we dive into how God has made us, we have to figure out who God is as the artist, as the great maker of the universe. Um, On December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1968, Apollo 8 finally had reached for the very first time out of Earth's orbit and was seeing the moon for the very first time. And NASA equipped the, uh, the, the shuttle with an ability to broadcast back to Earth what they were seeing as they were the first ones to see an Earth rise, not a sunrise or a moonrise, an Earth rise. And as they're capturing this on film, there was a debate among the three astronauts of what do we say to the world. Now, later on, they found out that one quarter of the entire world was watching this broadcast uh, to this day as one of the most televised events of all of human history. And there's debate going on and these speeches that were being written and nothing seemed right until one of the astronauts' wives recommended that they read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And each astronaut took turns reading from the very first chapter of Genesis as a quarter of the world watched for the first time the planet we all inhabit. And the only words fitting were, in the beginning God created. We have a God that before we are introduced to any attribute, any characteristic, the very essence of God, the very first thing we are introduced to, if you open up your Bible, is that we have a God who creates, who's a maker, who is the divine artist behind everything beautiful and orderly. And what that means for us is that how we interact with God and how we let Him form and inform how we live has to be approached in a unique way. And I fear that within our, our Western culture that has, uh, since the Industrial Revolution, has become increasingly more um, logical and reasonable based on science and all things which, to be honest, I, I kind of enjoy, that we cannot miss that there is a part of God that is only revealed as we understand Him as a creator, as an artist. N.T. Wright says, Some parts of the Western church have been so alarmed at rationalist attacks on the faith that they have attempted to mount rationalist counter-arguments for belief. But the way forward is not primarily intellectual. 
God the artist communicates to us first before God the lecturer. I love this. N.T. Wright, who um, Newsweek said is the world's premier New Testament scholar, says that God the artist communicates to us first before God the lecturer. Yet we show up to church, we watch a video or turn on a podcast thinking that we will find God um, explicitly through our intellect. But there's something about beauty, there's something about creation and the creative order that reveals something to us. Emily Dickinson, the great poet, um, when reflecting on the Industrial Revolution and factories and the effects of war and all that's gone on, had a term for this. She said it's the sweeping up of the heart. That somehow that's been swept up in the Industrial Revolution. Ema Gilchrist has this comment. He says that Western culture has been increasingly dominated by left-brain rationalism, while in fact our brains are designed to work best with the right brain, the creative side, leading the way, and the left brain, the logical side, working out the details. In other words, the way to human wholeness, which the gospel offers, is found not through assembling of detailed facts and arguments in themselves, they'll come in proper time, but through the imaginative leap to glimpse the larger world unveiled in the gospel. I love that Stevie last week just talked about our imagination and engaging our imagination as a way for us to interact with the Word of God and the presence of God. And we have essentially dismissed this wonder, this element as God, as artist, that needs to be recovered. And the obvious question to the Genesis poem, which is what it is, it's a poem, is what does God create if he's an artist? And he goes on a list of talking about the things that we see in land and water and vegetation and animals and light and dark. And at the very end of it, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you realize that the magnum opus of what God creates is you and me. He creates humanity in his image. Genesis 1.27 said that so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31 says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You see, we serve a God who is not only creative, but what he creates is good and redemptive. Which leads us to this realization that if God is an artist, a creator who makes good things, and the crescendo of his poem is that he makes humanity in his own image and doesn't only call us good, but very good, it means that you, whoever is watching this right now, I just want to give you a personal message from the scriptures, is that you were made good and redeemed by the incredible redemptive act of the artist. That this is in you. And whether you've realized it or not, that there is within the scriptures the good news that you were not made on accident, 
You are not the causation of, of DNA strands coming together. You are not the summation of some sort of um, kind of evolutionary um, curveball hurricane thing that just came out with you. You were designed with intention. The New Testament author Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That, that word, we are God's handiwork, in the Greek is poema, where we get our word poem. So after Paul delivers this beautiful description of the gospel, that you have been saved by grace through faith, it is not of works so that no one should boast. He ends this poem the same way the end of Genesis poem ends with, you were created, you are God's handiwork, his masterpiece, his poem. And the reason why this is so essential is that we live in a world that has a very fragmented, broken, fractured view of our own worth, of who we are. And it's evident everywhere, not just in the feeling, but in the offering of solutions. I mean, just walk through Barnes & Noble or open up um, the Amazon bestseller list. And what you will find is a plethora of material trying to get people to feel better about themselves. Why? Well, because we are facing a massive sense of there is something broken in us. We've talked extensively about even the effects of the pandemic the last couple of years, but even before that, there's a human longing that there is something that we feel like we are not enough. And when we understand that God is the creator, we start understanding that as his creation, we were created good with intention on purpose that we have been redeemed, redeemed through what Jesus has done. And our culture solution for it largely revolves around the topic of self-esteem like or self-love or self-care like hey listen don't care what anyone thinks about you it's only what you think about you and that sounds great the problem with that is if what only matters is what i think about me or how i love myself and my own self-esteem then that is completely contingent on my own emotional state rather than firmly planted on some other external reality interestingly enough an article recently that came out in the atlantic talks about how in 1986, the governor of California uh, signed legislation that created a task force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility, which concluded that boosting Californians' collective level of self-esteem would lower rates of crime, teen pregnancy, drug abuse, welfare dependency, and school underachievement. The task force's final report refer to self-esteem as a social vaccine, that it is central to most of the personal and social problems that plague human life in today's world. And so there was this huge swing, not just in this kind of pop psychology world, but in the political world, that the problem why people are ending up in jail or landing in crime or this crisis is because people have a low view of themselves, it's low self-esteem, which may be true, but the solution they offered was just think more of yourself. And the Bible gives us a different solution. It's not that you have to think more of yourself. It's that your creator and what he thinks of you should be the most true thing about yourself. Tim Keller's book, The 
freedom of self-forgetfulness highlights a story of when Madonna was interviewed by Vogue magazine in 1989 and she says this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I, have, that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Keller on commenting on that interview says this, I have, I've got the verdict that I'm somebody, but the next day I realize that unless I keep going, I'm not. My ego cannot be satisfied. My sense of self, my desire for self-worth, my need to be sure I'm somebody, it is not fulfilled. I keep thinking I have won it from what people have said about me and what the magazines and newspapers have written, but the next day I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because the ego is insatiable. It is a black hole. What I want to offer today is if God is the artist, he's our maker, then maybe the solution to our own brokenness is not self-esteem, self-love, self-care, as much as it is understanding that we are already loved by the maker of our soul, our bodies, our minds, our heart, is already in love with us. Look what it says in John 15. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Did you catch that? As the Father has loved me, Jesus talking, so have I loved you. Do you realize that Jesus loves you? Not in some sort of trite kind of just nostalgic, feel-good kind of way. No, Jesus loves you as much as he is loved by the Father. And our job is now to remain in that love. Erwin McManus, in his great book, The Artisan Soul, says, Within the universe's intention and its unique design around relationship, we find that the focal point of the universe, the motive of the universe, is love. God created life so that we could know love. Everything God does is an expression of his love. It is neither trite nor superficial. And the scriptures summarize this in three simple words. God is love. It is critical to understand this because if we are to reclaim our role in the creative process and express our lives as masterful works of art, we too must be sure that our motivation is the expansion of love. I think that the problem that prevents us from receiving this kind of love is that all we know is the world's kind of love, which is large, largely conditional and transactional. But the kind of love that God gives not only fills us, but listen to this, it redeems us. It changes us. It's not transactional, it's transformational. And largely the only love we know from our coworkers, our parents, our spouse, our kids has some sort of transactional element to it, even at our best, but it's within God's loving relationship that's not transactional, but it is transformational. I love C.S. Lewis's analogy in his book on mere Christianity. He says this, For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. 
It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings, may even give it an awkward appearance. I love Lewis's analogy that he's not, it's not like training horses to be better. No, it's turning horses into winged creatures. And that's what redemption does is you have been made new in Christ. And what might look like it loves kind of bumps on the shoulders is understanding that someday those are turning into wings and we will soar into who we are because that is what God has made us to do. And here's our last point. That if God is the artist, the good or redemptive artist, then we are his creation, now good and redeemed. And lastly, our lives are now to be creative expressions of his goodness and redemption. Remember what we read in Ephesians 2.10? For we are God's poema, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works. That word good in the Greek has this idea of generosity, of of giving. We are created to go and do that. Listen to the words of Jesus. says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, Erwin um, McManus says this, It takes courage to not only accept our limitations, but embrace our potential. To deny our creative nature is to choose a life where we are less and thus responsible for less. We see ourselves as created beings, so we choose to survive. But when we see ourselves as creative beings, we must instead create. And so a lot of times, there, even within the conversation on humility within Christian circles, there is a sense of wanting to hold back and not wanting to be too much or even to do too much. And what I would just encourage you is if God, as a creator, made you in his likeness, that you too are creative agents in the world of redemption and beauty and goodness. So go, lean into your potential. Be a creative redemption, redemptive force in the, the spheres around you, in the relationships around you. N.T. Wright says that we are redeemed not so that we can escape the world and go to heaven, but so that in the present age, as well as the age to come ourselves, we can be junior artists, apprenticed to the one true artist, God himself. One of my favorite books I've read this past year is called Art and Faith by Makoto Fujimura. And he's a world-renowned uh, painter. Uh, that galleries right now are existing in New York City and Pasadena and have all around the world. And he uses the ancient Japanese techniques of creating his own paint and on paper and uses precious minerals like gold and platinum in his paints and just this incredible artist. And in this book, he starts talking about the Japanese tradition of kintsugi. And kintsugi is when you take a broken piece of pottery, normally from tea, and they take, uh, they take the, this, this material 
that binds it together and within that material is gold. And so at the end of it, not only do you have a repaired pot or bowl, but the lining of that repair is filled with gold, therefore making it more valuable than it was before. And in his book, he talks about this art form, this kintsugi art form, as, an, as a parable, an image of what God has done with us. He has taken, come and taken the broken pieces of our lives, and rather than throwing them away as useless, has gathered them together and through the cross and through the Spirit of God, has mended us back together, giving us even greater value that was already intrinsically within us moving us to a place of beauty and purpose and redemption. And in his book, he tells his story when he's talking with, he's sitting with the Kintsugi master and he pulls out a piece of broken pottery and he says, guess how old this is? And he says, how old is it? They think that this clay is 10,000 years old. And as he talks about rubbing his thumb against the bottom of this broken tea teapot that's about to be turned into a work of art. He says, I could feel the hands, the movement of the, of the artist from 10,000 years ago. And I love that picture because I think that's our job to do. Our job is not to fix people. Our job is not to go and turn people into something they're not. But with our lives, we can actually press into them in such a way that we can feel the master's creative expression on them and see if we're close enough what the great Kintsugi artist the redeemer of the entire world can do with a broken heart, a broken life as he turns it into something beautiful. And so I just encourage you this week, enjoy God as the artist, the creator. It's what we are first introduced him as. Just like a Kintsugi potter, he mends our brokenness, only revealing our greatness. Like a Renaissance painter, he knows it's underneath the outer layers of what everyone praises. Like a great architect, he plans and designs a greater plan and design that even our, our, our life could not hold. And like a great songwriter, he weaves meaning and intent into our symphonies. I just want to encourage you to understand that you have been made with intention. And if you don't know that yet, I would invite you just to invite God into your heart. Invite Jesus into your heart to begin to start revealing that, giving your life over to the master and the maker of your own heart and to live into what he's called you to. Grace and peace. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. <laughs>